All right, make yourselves comfortable. It's good to see you on Super Bowl Sunday. <laughs> it's good to see you. My name is Luke. If I've not met you yet, I look forward to meeting you after the service. Um, I'm one of the pastors here at Legacy Church, and I'm, I'm glad to be able to go through this text today. It's a fun text. Um, I will say, going into this, if there was ever a resolution that I had over my life or a change that I would always want to make, something that I always see on my list of personal change and improvements, is that that's just to enjoy prayer more. I'm probably not the only one in the room that has that on their list. Growing up for me as a little kid, prayer was always the thing that started things or ended things. It's like the, the spiritual transition strip, right? You do it before a meal, you do it after a meeting, you do it at the end of a day before you go to bed. It's just the thing that you do in between things. It was just kind of talking to the air um, because that's what other people did. And maybe somebody was listening, maybe not. Maybe we're doing it right, maybe we're not. The older I got, Pop culture started to speak into my theology of prayer. By the time I was 15, I think MC Hammer had more influence on my prayer life than the Bible did. He had, for those of you who don't know who MC Hammer is, he was a, a rap phenom back in the day, and he had this song called Pray. Pray just to make it through the day, he said. And that's just what I thought prayer was. I thought prayer was just something that you just kind of tossed up to the man upstairs just to get through the day. Other pop culture would teach me, it's the thing that you do when the world's coming to an end, before the, the meteor comes crashing down, before the tsunami wave sweeps in or the bullets start to fly. Uh, that's, the, that's the opportune time for the Psalm 23 prayer or the Lord's prayer. It's just something that you did, basic times, something that you did in desperate times. Now, my theology for prayer has moved past MC Hammer at this point, even if my dress code hasn't, <laughs> or my slang, because I would put some baggy pants on like that. But I think I've learned a little bit from what the Word has told us, specifically through this passage today. It's interesting how prayer can still be difficult for me, and maybe for some of you, even though theologically, we know the basic components of prayer. It's not like the mechanics are difficult or anything. First of all, A, you have to believe that God is big, loving, and can actually answer prayer. He can actually insert himself into your life. And another is that you just have to conceive of a thought. You have to just, even in a moment, just lift up a prayer. If you believe those two things, prayer shouldn't be difficult, but it is, isn't it? I'd be willing to bet that I'm not the only one in the room that would love to enjoy prayer more, right? What do you pray for? Do you do it a certain way? Could you be praying wrong? Is it possible to pray incorrectly? Why don't we do it? Why don't we enjoy it? I mean, really, why don't we enjoy it? Think in today's passage, which I think, in my opinion, is a very under-resourced passage when it comes to prayer. Jesus talks to us a little bit about it and the Holy Spirit's primary role among mankind, which are both very fascinating to me. And I do think MC Hammer might have it wrong. So I'd love to read this passage with you today. If you brought a Bible, um, turn to John 16. That's going to be where we're at, John 16. We're just continuing our work through the series that we've been going through, the whole book of John. It's a series called Hero. We ended at verse 5 last week, so we're going to pick it up in verse, no, 
yeah, verse four last week. We're gonna pick it up in verse five. This is the word of the Lord for you and me today. Father, we just pray that you help us see you more clearly in this. It says in verse five, but now I am going to him who sent me and none of you asks, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. A little while now, and you will see me no longer. And again, in a little while, you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us a little while and you will not see me, and again, a little while and you will see me, and because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he just said to him, is this what you were asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me and again a little while and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will be able to take joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you've asked nothing in my name, and you will receive and ask, and you will receive that your joy may be full. Verse 25, I have said these things to you in figures of speech, and the hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that all things that are, now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, 
I have overcome the world. So we're jumping into a conversation here, picking up where we left off last week. We're just a few seconds ago in this conversation. Jesus was telling them about all the trouble and tribulation that is coming their way. Trouble's coming. It's going to be coming in waves, big waves. That's what they're hearing. Right around the corner. Jesus is leaving them with the check at what feels like a very poor time. He says it in verse 5. He says it again in verse 28. He says, I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. I'm leaving. I'm gone. I don't think we have to imagine too much what they were feeling at the time. We know from the text that they weren't super concerned over Jesus leaving and just losing that fellowship. They were mostly concerned about what was going to happen to them. That's really the fight that was going on. I don't think we have to imagine what was really deeply going on because they did scatter. He was right. The shepherd was taken and the sheep, they just ran. They were all found back at the fishing docks. They were found back in their common jobs, back in their normal rhythms. I mean, the mood of this conversation is growing more and more solemn as we've looked at from week to week to week. No one's really cracking jokes right now. No one's grinning. No one's goosing each other. There's just a heaviness that's in the air. And he says it even this way. Because I have said these things to you, Jesus says, sorrow has filled your heart. Because more trouble and less Jesus isn't really the future that they had in mind. Right? But me neither, though. That's not really the future I always have in mind. I mean, I don't think we're very different today. I think we can get very sorrowful. I mean, a heart full of sorrow, very panicky at the prospect that trouble is coming and tribulation is coming and Jesus isn't going to quite be there like we want him to be there, like we'd hoped that he would be there. And so Jesus knows this and, and only a sweetness that Jesus can speak through, he gives us a kind two-part answer to the problem in the tribulation of his departure. That's the Holy Spirit and that is prayer. It's a really cool passage. He says this in verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage. There is going to be an upgrade. It's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, that's the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Now with the dialogue, the way that it's been, and with the mood of the text seemingly getting heavy and more morose, I have a feeling that they're not really picking up what he's putting down right now. I mean, he's telling them of a better situation for them, an advantage. They're going to be advantaged soon, but you can tell they're really concerned. They're really hurting, because I want you to remember, historically, as long as they stuck to Jesus, the tribulation kind of would, would go away a little bit. I mean, they would get themselves in jams, but seemingly Jesus would just fix them and they would land on their feet every single time. And now Jesus is leaving. He's returning. He's going back. And now trouble is coming in waves and he is chatting up his departure and sorrow has filled their hearts. Where is this happening to you today? Before we headlong into this text, where is that happening for you? What I mean is, is where is sorrow filling your heart? Where do you feel like Jesus isn't present, like you want him to be present? He's not doing what you want him to do. You know all the right theology, but you still have a lot of sorrow in your heart. You see, you and me, we're on the sunnier side of the cross today. And we could actually see that Jesus was right. It actually was good that he left. 
their hearts were full of sorrow, but it was good for the whole world that he would enter the atonement, that he would find the cross, the tomb, the right side of his father. It was good for you, it was good for me. He was right. He's always right. There's great reason to rejoice. And then he says, you will have a helper come. This is really good news for us. Really, I don't think we reflect on how much of the good news is the Holy Spirit coming to you and me. It is God's most brilliant plan to send the Holy Spirit. It's not an afterthought. It was part of his beautiful gospel. You see, the gospel, it doesn't end with a vacant tomb. I think in our minds sometimes we get tripped up and we slip into the gospel is the good news and Easter somehow is the end of it all. And it's not really good after that. Stuff happens after that, but not the good news, not the gospel. But that's not true. The gospel has layers to it. The gospel, it celebrates Jesus' ascension to the right hand of his Father, interceding, endorsing you. Another layer of the gospel is him sending the helper, the great encourager, the spirit of truth, the very spirit of God to you. Part of the gospel is building God's church. It assembling people becoming radical believers, person by person and nation by nation. This is part of the good news. All until the day, as we grow together closer, all till the day where King Jesus rides in on a white horse and rolls up all of creation like a scroll in which we get to celebrate and be in his glory, basking in his glory forever upon forever upon forever upon forever. This is really good news. You see, the large picture of the gospel, if you were to sum up the gospel in one sentence, it's God redeeming creation. God redeeming broken creation through the person of Jesus. And part of this is him sending a Holy Spirit and helper to you. Therefore, you will never be alone. Never, ever, 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 ever be alone. This is part of the gospel. Part of the gospel is that we grow in the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit finds residence in us, which is hard for some people to conceive of. We've actually touched on this the last couple weeks. We see in John 14, 23, if anyone loves me, Jesus says, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him. When he says we, who is he talking about? Him and his father, right? We will come to him and make our home with him. Before that, it says he's gonna go away to make a place for us. And now he is saying that we become a place for them. The Father, the Son. And then we see in 2 Corinthians 6, where he says, for we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So we see God dwelling in us, walking among us. We are not alone. This is part of the gospel. The Holy Spirit is a big part of the gospel, not a bit part in the gospel. A big part of your good news. When you tell yourself the good news, when you preach the gospel to yourself, which is another sermon altogether I would love to preach, whenever we apply the truth of the gospel to our own hearts, is the Holy Spirit in that fluency? Is he part of that? He really ought to be, right? 
Now this big role of the Holy Spirit in all of our redemption, the big part of the Holy Spirit in our good news, our, our Holy Spirit, he has, he has a, a mission, a primary mission. It's good to know. You see, the Holy Spirit, from what we see in this text, his primary mission is to point mankind to Jesus. You pick that up pretty thickly. It's to point mankind to Jesus and lead us all to the truth in the gospel. That's what he wants to do. That's what satisfies the person of the Holy Spirit. That's what makes him excited, to point to Jesus. Not to take, not to take all, all of the attention himself and hoard it to himself, but it's to say, look at, look at Jesus. And then Jesus, by his perfect life, death, and life, says, Look at the beauty of God for you. He defers it. He defers it like John the Baptist does, saying, I must decrease. I'm not, the, I'm not the trophy on the trophy case. I'm just pointing to the one who is. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He is satisfied and full of joy when extending the fame of King Jesus, not diverting it to himself. We see in verse 8, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And it gets kind of clunky right here. People get tripped up in how this reads. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of the world is judged, right? So what's happening right here? Because it, it kind, of, kind of read clunky a little bit. This is describing the helper, the Holy Spirit's relationship to those who are far from Jesus, the lost culture. Because I want you to remember, for those of you who are in Jesus, for those of you who would call yourselves Christians, I want you to recall what it was like whenever God was turning your hearts and bringing you into the fold, adopting you, saving you, rescuing you. Consider that moment where you understood that to not trust or believe in Jesus was sin. You see, originally it was probably just a different opinion or a religion that other people did. But you didn't have to trust and believe. But that moment, that moment where you said to not trust Jesus, that's just sin. That moment that that happened to you, that was the Holy Spirit actively working in you. The Holy Spirit, the helper, was driving your gaze to Jesus. In, in the same way, whenever you realize that your own righteousness was way short of where it needed to be, that moment that you realize that the only righteousness that would make you approved before God himself was the righteousness that came by Christ Jesus. When you got that, when it just blew your mind, that was the Holy Spirit doing that. Not your two pound fallen brain. You're not that smart, I'm not that smart. That was the Holy Spirit. That moment that you realized, wait, maybe the world is not right. Maybe pop culture is wrong. Maybe there is an enemy of my soul. And maybe the gospel is right whenever he is defeated. That's the Holy Spirit teaching you these things. You see how big of a part he plays? That's how he interacts. Not only this, it gets better because Jesus also sketches out how the helper helps and loves those who love Jesus, who are close to Jesus. He says this, verse 13, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He's talking to his disciples, believers. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, Jesus says, for he will take what is mine, Jesus says, and declare it to you. This is super cool. 
I love how in this where he says that he will declare the things that are to come. Let me explain what he means to that. He's basically saying in layman's terms, hey guys, I'll be up on a cross and then I'll be off of a cross. I'll be in a tomb and then I'll be out of a tomb. I'll be here with you teaching you and then I'll be at the right hand of God. All of that's gonna happen and then the helper's gonna come and help make sense of all the pieces, make them all fit together. You will see the gospel and how it connects to your life. That's what's happening. That's what's happening. And they did see it. The helper did help them. How do we know that? The New Testament. <laughs> the New Testament is them journaling it all out. It's, you could see in the New Testament, specifically the epistles, where God, through his spirit, helps them make sense of all the pieces of what the death meant and what the resurrection meant and what it means for, for death to be put in its own grave and how all of that connects to you and how all of it connects to me. So we know it works. And we get to see it too today in our lives. The same helper that spoke to them kindly and connected the dots for them connects the dots for you and me. We get to see this, how all the pieces fit together and how the gospel connects to us. In other words, this is how the helper, the Holy Spirit, works in you. That moment that you see that the gospel and the hero of our gospel in Jesus helps you beat addiction, that's the Holy Spirit doing that work, helping you ironing it in, blowing your mind, helping you forgive someone that you've struggled forgiving. That time that you finally see how the gospel helps you overcome a fear of man and a fear of rejection, that's the Holy Spirit working in you. It's the Holy Spirit doing work in you, even in that moment, when you see the gospel freshly. When you find yourself more fascinated. You know what I mean when I say that? There's just moments, like little glimpses. I, I know some Anglican friends, they call it the thin places, right? That place where you feel like you're, you're in between heaven and earth. You're right there, and it feels like, gosh, I just never want to leave this moment. I can see so clearly. I'm so fascinated with the gospel. I'm so in love with Jesus right now. I never want to, that right there, that moment provided by the Holy Spirit. You could thank him for that. He's good at what he does. He is the builder of those thin places. I think the reason I'm going overboard on showing you the role of the helper for the lost world and the role of the helper for all of us who love Jesus to say that is his primary role is to point out the beauty of Jesus. That's his primary role. What we can do as believers sometimes is we could wreck that. We could take his primary role and rewrite it. Give him a new job description, right? Give him a new purpose, give him a new mission. There's three primary ones I can think of. One is that we think that the primary mission and role for the Holy Spirit is to give us gifts. That's just what he's there to do. It's the Father, the Son, and the gift giver. He just gives gifts, like Santa Claus, just here. You can have that, you can have three, you can have 10. You probably don't have any. Isn't that how we feel? And certainly, we have Spirit-empowered gifts given to us. That's true. Why do we have those gifts? To show the world the beauty of who Jesus is. To, to declare before the whole world how awesome the gospel is, right? You, you have a gift to heal? It's fantastic. It should paint the portrait of how God heals mankind through the person of Jesus, right? You're a good host, you have a gift of hospitality, it is to paint the picture and divert attention to the fact that we are greatly hosted in a house by an incredible host. 
You see how every single gift that is given to us is meant to be a giant billboard that say, look at, look at him. Look at Jesus. Look how beautiful he is. Look how beautiful he is. That's what the gifts are for. It's to divert gaze to Jesus. I think we can also sometimes think that the Holy Spirit's primary role is to draw us to him or to his gifts, that he's putting himself at the top of the pyramid. The Holy Spirit is about the Holy Spirit. This isn't true. I automatically think of a car show. Not one of those car shows where it's all concept cars, things that aren't even out on the road yet. I'm thinking about the old ones where everybody gets their hobby, right? Their weekend hobby. And they shine their weekend hobby and they bring it out and park it on the strip with all everyone else's weekend hobbies, right? And they polish it, they stand in front of it, they brag over it, maybe answer some questions, and then they lust after the hobbies all around them, right? We we, we buy t-shirts that describe the car show, we eat corn dogs, we spend the rest of the day talking about what our favorite hobby looked like that day, right? And if you're not into car shows, it could be a gun show, it could be Pinterest, house, it could be Facebook, we all have our car shows. But we, we, we show off what we have and then we lust after what other people have. I think we could do this with the Holy Spirit's gifts. I think this is a big trap where it's all about the gifts and which ones are the most polished and what we think about the, our, our hobby gift and lusting after the hobby gifts around us. We just stare, we wish we had theirs. I think some of you have been caught up in settings like this, I have. Not much made of Jesus because there's not enough time because the Holy Spirit has center stage. I don't even think the Holy Spirit's very excited about that, having center stage like that. Anytime you see gifts, works, talents, activities, services that elevate the Holy Spirit above everything, that's just not healthy, friends. Again, he says in this passage, he is fulfilled in diverting Jesus or dividing our attention to Jesus, the one who is most beautiful. The one who is most beautiful. Because the Spirit declares what Jesus intends. That's what the passage says. Convicting the world over its state of affairs, leading Jesus, or leading Jesus' disciples to see and make much of him. And I think anything else is, starts to be a little bit goofy at that point. You see, both are fully God. God the Spirit and God the Son are both fully God. But the Holy Spirit's role is to divert mankind's affection and fixation on the gospel of God through the person of Jesus, his life, death, life, right? I think another thing we can get trapped in sometimes is to begin to think that the Holy Spirit's primary purpose is to draw people to us, it becomes a little bit of a billboard for you and me. This is where we see the abuse in gifts, right? The whole book of Corinth. If you look at Corinthians, first book, first Corinthians, read that. That's pretty much what it is right there. Paul's really having to deal with a big fat look at me fest. This is like having a car show where we leave the car at home because it gets in the way of everyone looking at us. That's even more goofy than the car show. But that's what's happening in this young church because people will start to build ranking systems after a while on which which gifts look more valuable than the others. Who has more gifts? Who has the cooler gifts? And it's usually working out to where the more sensational gifts have more of a front row seat, more value and significance than the back of house gifts. We've had series taught on this, so I won't go into it a lot now. 
But Paul shows us what the real value behind the gift is, and it is what? How it serves each other to see Jesus more clearly. It still has nothing to do with us. Listen, if you're ever in a church service, if you're ever in a church service where you see gifts strictly for the reason to get everyone else to look at your gifts, and it's all about the gifts, if you're ever in there, leave as soon as you can and leave a brutal comment card on the way out, right? One star, no stars, right? And just go to Bojangles because your chances of seeing Jesus are probably higher there than in a church service where it's a big fat look at me gift-a-thon over Jesus' big, he's famous, and we adore him. See, again, the Holy Spirit's not interested in exchanging Jesus' glory for man's glory. He's just not interested in doing that. So what I'm trying to show you now is that the Holy Spirit has a role. And everything he does is to draw people's gaze to Jesus. And it gets even better. This passage gets even better. Because not only does Jesus send us a helper, he opens prayer to be a little bit different than what has been seen previously. This is interesting. Jesus is now saying, you can pray to the Father in my name, and he will hear you, and he'll answer. This is really good timing, because things are about to get real for these guys. And in fact, you read the book of Acts, and what do you see these guys doing a lot? Praying, praying in the name of Jesus. This is relevant to you and me. This is relevant to you and me today, because we have tribulations and troubles that come, but oddly, we're silent. We give God the silent treatment even though we know how prayer works. I think we give him the silent treatment and then we pretend that we're not offended, which is passive aggressive, is it not? Prayerlessness is mostly just a passive aggressive action. And it's our theology that drives this. Now we know on paper that it is good to pray to God and that he hears us. We've, just, we've already read a few passages that kind of show us that. But that's not the theology I'm talking about. I'm not talking about your thin doctrinal statement that you have written down somewhere or your bookshelf that's supposed to tell everybody else what your doctrinal belief system is. What I'm talking about is the little theologian inside because that is where our behavior comes from. When we are not praying, it's not because of what we say our theology is because of what we really, really believe. The real theologian inside says, God, you're deaf. You don't hear what I'm saying and you're heartless. You definitely don't care. And there's no joy to be found in praying to you, so I'm just not going to do it. Why would I pray? That's the real theologian. It's a broken theology, but it's the one we have. Luke, how do you know? Because you don't pray. Same reason I know for me. So, when the pain is about to arrive, Jesus does not promise that everything will be peaceful. He does not teach them on how to get more aggressive how to roll with a punch. He doesn't lead them out into the desert. He doesn't lead them into the city. He leads them to pray, pray of all things. And not only that, he's saying that's where joy is found, in the middle of prayer, deep prayerful connection to the Father. And this prayer is helped by the Holy Spirit, his great gift to us, because the Holy Spirit leads us in how to pray. Are you starting to see how these are beautiful gifts given at a good time to these disciples who are in big, big trouble? You know, I think we hear sermons like this sometimes and we think, oh gosh, had I known he was going to talk on prayer, I would have just stood over the crock pot all morning. 
I mean, I've got stuff I gotta have ready for the game anyway. I wouldn't have even gone, Luke, I get it, I hear you. Uncle, you know, it's uncomfortable. We start looking at our watch. I gotta go to the bathroom, you know, a lot of bathroom trips right now. Because it's one of those sermons, isn't it? But why? Why do you wanna pray? Why pray? Why? Why ask for anything in Jesus' name? Because you're supposed to? Because that's just what you're supposed to do? So you feel like less of a loser? So you'll get things? What, what is the why behind it? You know, it's really, really hard to talk about prayer without a heavy cloud of condemnation coming into the room and gassing us all. I just want you to relax, though. Because your failure to pray well, it, it does not wash out God's perfection in holding you close. You simply can't outrun his grace with your prayerless life. So just relax in this. There's no condemnation. In the gospel, there's no room for condemnation. It's gone. No condemnation. No shame. No guilt. It's been washed away. That's what it means. That's how good the gospel is. The gospel says that, no, perfection is not a mark that you ever hit, nor is it a mark that you will hit. And that's why Jesus came. Because he was perfect, hitting the mark every time. All right? So even in your silence, Jesus has spoken. In your silence, he's spoken with his mouth and with his life. Because no, we cannot be perfect. And I know, and even when I'm writing this, I think, yeah, I know I get that, but, but, but I don't really ever pray. Maybe some of, the, some of you are thinking, but Luke, I don't really ever pray. I mean, prayer, prayer is really hard for me. It's something that I've always struggled with. And again, you cannot sin deeper than God can love. You cannot sin more pervasively than God can shower you with grace and love. So your mute, silent treatment, it just pales in comparison to the shout of victory over death and sin that has already been pronounced over the people of God. So you see, another layer of the good news is not just the helper coming to lead you and me, but another layer of the good news is we have direct access to the Father, and we get joy there. This is fascinating to me, okay? So it says in verse 23, in that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. And then it says later on in verse 26, in that day you will ask in my name. There he says it again. And I do not say that to you that I will ask a father on your behalf, for the father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. This gives people trouble. When they read this sometimes, what they're reading is, well, that sounds a lot to me like Jesus is not going to intercede for us there. Like he's kind of excusing himself for this. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, I am an interceder, but he kind of passes me up. He's like already there. Why? Because we love Jesus and he loves us. It's really cool. I, I believe this is the first time we see Jesus teaching us to pray in his name. I believe it is. So what that means is typically when Old Testament saints, which they would still be called Old Testament at this point, Old Testament saints, when they would pray, they would use God's promises to be their endorsement. God, you promised this. So I'm holding you to your promise. That's, that's what provided them the open door. That's what lowered the drawbridge for them to have access to God himself is his own promises, right? But here we see Jesus saying, now that door opens because you use my name. I endorse you. 
I open up that door for you. No, no, more, no more bloody sacrifices. No more priests. Jesus himself greets us, gives us a warm reception before the Father. So right now, the door is open for us, and the Father is listening. That's why Jesus says, ask and you will receive, that your joy may be full. We see later on in John, 1 John 5, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears. And if we know that he hears us, and whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. So now, Jesus says praying in his name is important. Certainly you've done this and you've seen other people do it, have you not? This is where it came from, right here. He is our advocate. He is our endorsement, that's what it means, right? It is Jesus that grants us access to the Father. So what this means is fluent prayers don't hold all the value. You've been in those little group meetings, those group prayers where you're like, you know, it starts off with one person and you spend most of your time thinking about what you're going to say. You're not even really listening to anyone else. You're getting a game plan together, right? You're just thinking, thinking, thinking. I don't want to sound stupid. I don't want to sound stupid. What can I pray and not sound stupid, right? But there's always one person in the, in the room that just is having a moment, right? Like, they're like weepy, they turn into a Puritan all of a sudden, and their words just flow, and you're like, oh my gosh, how do you follow that act up, you know? I'm gonna have to dig deeper. You have to start thinking even more. <laughs> Listen, that fluent prayer, that puritanical prayer, it doesn't outrun yours. It doesn't have more power than yours. Why? Because the access that you had to the Father is not gained by fluency, it's gained by Jesus' endorsement. In Jesus' name. Now, what if you forget to say in Jesus' name? This is a little bit of a side trail, right? Not real super big to this text, but I have known some people that kind of fritz out a little bit if you don't throw that little thing in there. Like Jesus just hits delete, right? Did you say in Jesus' name? Uh-uh. Try again, you know? <laughs> and they panic a little bit. All it means to pray in Jesus' name, this is what he's saying, is that when we approach God with our sole right to do so, being the work and the love, really the perfect work of Jesus Christ. That we know in our heart, when I approach God, this is the only reason I can be here. The only reason I can even speak to you right now, Father, is because of what Jesus did. That's what it means to do something in Jesus' name. Whether or not those words roll across your lips. right? Because sometimes you know as well as I do, a prayer, it's a fleeting thought. Oh my God, help me. Oh my God, what am I doing? Oh my God, where are you, right? And in Jesus' name doesn't just roll across the lips. I'm not saying it's bad practice to do it. I think it's good. I think it always resets us, kind of like a chiropractor popping all the knots out because we, we realize it is in Jesus' name that I'm asking, that I'm praising, that I'm adoring, that I'm confessing. It's, it's him that's doing that. Just like, just like when we have communion and we have baptism and when we sing, these are things among other purposes, they kind of straighten us out and refocus us. I have no problem with saying in Jesus' name at all. I think it's important. It postures us so we don't show up and just say, hey, listen, God, I'm just a dude that has a problem and you're just a guy that can fix it. So what do we do with this? For the people who don't pray, like they want, for the people who don't have joy, enjoy praying 
For those of us who don't follow the leadership of the helper like they want, what do we do? He tells us very clearly, step one, be at peace. It's pretty cool, be at peace. He has overcome the world, he says. You know what that means, it means he's overcome your failure. He's overcome it. Overcoming the world means overcoming our failures. How did he do this? By defeating sin on the cross, defeating death out of the tomb. That's how he did it. And how did he do this? He was helped by the Holy Spirit, the great helper. This gives you great freedom. If you're failing to pray, if you're failing to be led by the Holy Spirit to pray, to enjoy Jesus, listen, God has overcome your failure by his life, death, and life. He has overcome it. So you are free from all the shame that comes from failing to pray and failing to be led. You're free from all that, but you're also free from failing. You're also free to grow. You're free to change. You're free to enjoy Jesus in prayer, to enjoy God's care because the Father is crazy about us. The Father of God is crazy about us. He loves us so much. He loves us so much. And the Holy Spirit is satisfied in pointing to Jesus and leading us and our broken hearts to Jesus. He's content in that. And you, friends, are free to enjoy all of that. We're free. Just a couple practical points. Practically, and I'm going to zooming out right? Practically, when we don't know how to pray, we can always ask the Holy Spirit to show us how to pray. And he'll do it. What should I pray for? What is God's will? Because if the passage is saying, I just need to pray in God's will, and whatever is prayed according to his will is going to happen, well, it seems to me I need to figure out what his will is. Well, what shows you what his will is? The word of God the narrative of the gospel, his intentions for mankind, and how the Holy Spirit brings it to life before us. Romans 8 says it this way. Romans 8, 26. It says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses, or our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. Okay, so there's me, like 80% of the time, don't know about you, not really quite knowing how to pray. I have a general idea, right? I know that something's not good, something needs to change, but exactly how to say it? I don't know, I don't know. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. This is a beautiful grace to you and me. Even our imperfect pleas, where we go half-cocked into prayer, and we, we sputter out broken sentence fragments that aren't really hitting the mark, and that's because we don't even know what we're doing, that even in those moments, the Holy Spirit says, got this. Because he interprets our heart, knows what's going on, carries us straight to the throne room of God. That's grace. Do you need a translator for your broken prayers? Because I do. I do. What a great grace to us. So if you don't know, ask. Lord, I know that something needs to change here. This broken part of the city, it's so broken, and I want it to change, and I want to be a part, but I don't know what a missionary does right here. Holy Spirit, could you show me what I should even be praying for in this? Right? Or my family is just, 
broken up. I mean, jagged edges all up against jagged edges and everybody hates each other and nothing functional is occurring right now. I don't even know where to start in my prayer. God, could you show me through your spirit how I'm supposed to be praying right now? He'll do it. This is what this means. Also practically, pray that God would be glorified in your prayers because this is where joy is found. This is how you get that fullness of joy. Whenever the win is not you winning, but God winning. <laughs> you will be more satisfied when God wins than you will when you win. I know it sounds counterintuitive, but it is true. You are entering a king's chamber, a warm, receptive place where the king's ear is listening to you and he is excited over you and joyous over you. You will be most satisfied in any outcome whenever this great king is magnified and glorified in your life. Because he is, to steal from John Piper, he is more, most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him. This prayer sounds a little bit more like, I really, really want this thing to happen. This thing. I need this thing to happen. But. But that you would be glorified because, Lord, that's where I find the most joy. And, and, and Holy Spirit, help me be most joyous when God is most glorified because I struggle with that. It's just being open. It's just being honest and asking the Holy Spirit to help our hearts be settled and seated in joy when God is made much of, when Jesus is shown to be who he is before all creation. So, Jesus is returning to the Father soon and trouble is gonna flood in and Jesus says it's gonna get better for us and the gospel will be activated and we get a helper and the king warmly hears our heart's cries. We get this in the passage and it's good for you and me because many of us are in trouble. We're in trouble with tribulations, with wrecks around us. And Jesus might not be behaving like we want him to. And joy is gone. We're not full of joy. We're full of sorrow. So just ask the Spirit to encourage you, to help you, practically help you see the whole gospel of God and how it's good news for you now, even in the midst of your trials. Ask the Father in Jesus' name for whatever would glorify him the most, chief among these, that you would have a deeper satisfaction in him. It sounds odd to pray that, doesn't it? Lord, could you help me be more satisfied in you? Because there's a partial admission that he's just not good enough at that moment. And that feels kind of awkward to say. We wouldn't say that to another person, would we? Hey man, we've been hanging out for a little while. I was just wondering if you could like help me like you more. Because right now I'm not digging you, you know? I'm ready to blow on and find a new friend, if you know what I mean. Could you help me out here? I mean, we would sound like a jerk. But when we struggle with our affections, we have the freedom by the name of Jesus, by the work of Jesus, we have the freedom to say, God, I love you, but I'm not totally satisfied. Wreck me everywhere else that I would just be satisfied with you, that I would adore you above all things. I'd be fascinated with you above all things. These are prayers as dangerous as they are. These are prayers that God loves to swoop in and, and answer. Go ahead and stand with me. I'm going to read this last little passage over you before we close out. It's in Revelation. I love ending a service on a Revelation passage. This is in chapter 12. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb 
and the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even to death. You know, overcoming is not something that we do for Jesus, it's something that we do by Jesus. Overcoming and being an overcomer is not check me out, I've got it put together. It's saying that I am overcoming because Jesus overcame. And here it's talking right now about how we have conquered and we are overcoming by our song, our story, and the blood of our hero. That is how we overcome. Our song, our story, our tale, our testimony, and the blood of our hero. Let me pray for you. Father, we thank you for being so sweet to us and kind to us that you don't stand from afar and wait for us to utter out a perfectly phrased prayer, nailing everything, even punctuation. Father, you have the right to do that because you are great and you are glorious and you are majestic and you are above all. You have the right to do that, to say you cannot approach me unless you are perfect and unless you have perfect things to say. But Father, your grace says we get what we don't deserve and we don't get what we do deserve. Instead, instead as broken and as fragile and as flawed as we are, we can appear before you and, and just sputter things with our heart feeling something but not really able to put it into words. And yet your spirit takes that and fixes it. That's astonishing to me. Lord, what a great helper you are to us. Lord, I thank you for all the prayers that you have heard from me. All the prayer where I might have had an odd motive, or I might have said the wrong thing, or had a lack of respect, or treated it casually and just, just with, with, with no honor at all. And yet your grace extends even to that. Lord, I just pray that as we, we sing and as we take communion as your church, and as we meditate on, on where our hearts are at, Lord, that you would help us see where we might be mishandling the role of the Holy Spirit, and that we would repent and turn from it. Or Father, maybe, maybe we need you to bring focus to, to how we pray, how we don't pray, and what that internal theologian is really saying. Father, maybe we're finding joy in things that that are replacing the joy that we would find in you, or at least attempting to. God, there's so much work to be done in a passage like this. I'm so thankful that you would bring it to us, so very, very thankful that we can say in Jesus' name, or not say it, but know and understand with the depth of our being that the only right, the only reason we have to even be in that throne room is because of the work that you did on our behalf. You are truly our hero. We love you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.